My guest today is a Cape Town-based clinical psychologist, Selindile Mbata, whose interest in psychology stemmed from a curiosity and desire to understand herself and the people around her better. With her practice, Slee strives to ensure that therapy is a safe space for everyone to walk their own journey and to express themselves without shame or judgment. I'm so pleased to have her on the line now to chat about the darker side of motherhood. Welcome, Slindile. Hi, Sam. Thank you for having me. Oh, really great to be here. It's been a long time coming. I've got so much that I'd love to, to pick your brain about. But today we are chatting some of the aspects, the darker aspects of motherhood. And um, this includes generational trauma and how this will impact on any parents. And I think this almost became a bit of a hot uh, topic or a, a, a sort of a phrase that that's new to a lot of people. Um, but I'd love to know what your definition of it is, of generational or transgenerational trauma. What is the connection and what is the qu- connection between that and new motherhood? Okay, so generational trauma is really, I mean, what it kind of sounds like that it's trauma or any experience of severe stress um, that can actually be passed down from one generation to the next. So what's really interesting about it is that, um, you know, you might have, for instance, um, someone in uh, an older generation experiencing a particular trauma, whether it's abuse um, or whether it's, you know, violence or or anything like that, but then actually um, pass down that experience to the next generation so that the next person doesn't necessarily have to have been through the exact same experience, but um, because of what is being passed down to them as far as thoughts, as far as beliefs, as far as behavior patterns, they might actually be vicariously almost living out this traumatic experience um, with, without having experienced it firsthand at all. So I would say, you know, the, the connection between that and new motherhood, um, I mean, if you think about it, new motherhood is really an identity altering experience Mm. so you know you have the sense of responsibility for for this life that you've brought into the world and you might actually be as a new mother someone who has a generational trauma that has been passed down to them without necessarily realizing that that is the case so you might through your own parents or you know extended family members have had these very traumatic reactions really um to stress passed down to you from previous generations or even been raised in an environment where there's a high sensitivity to stress and to anxiety. Um, And so you might find yourself even parenting in a way that is quite um, anxious or or is quite fueled with this extreme worry or fear or anxiety that's actually quite characteristic of trauma. So I do think, you know, because new motherhood is um, is so life altering that it can already be so anxiety provoking. Mm. Um, but also, you know, we, we have to think about um, the parenting experience. So from the very beginning, the conception itself. Um, for some, for some new mothers, you know, the conception might have been a traumatic event actually, and so that might then be passed down in terms of um, parenting the child and sort of uh, feeling highly anxious in in, in parenting the child. The birth itself might have been quite a traumatic experience 
as well. So that might mean um, a very different parenting style. If you've already experienced a trauma from the outset, you know, you, you might not um, be, or, or let me say you might be much more anxious and much more stressed, um, which is actually natural and normal. But yeah, so there's a lot of different components, I think, where they, there's so many potential areas of trauma that can happen um, as a new parent before the child even comes into the world. Um, so it's just something to look out for. And I think it's something that's quite, it's, there's actually quite an intimate link between generational trauma and, um, and, and motherhood. It's important that you say that um, it's unwitting. You know, a lot of people who bring it on to the next generation are doing so. And almost, un- I, I don't think that people would be willing to do that. If you have experienced a trauma, you don't want it to impact on your child. But if it's not something that you've dealt with, then it does in some way, shape or form. What I also want to point out is, I mean, as we know with trauma, it's a sliding scale. Um, and, you know, it could be something as simple as corporal punishment or emotional abuse, uh, name calling or, or, you know, something quite unquote more simple or something bigger, more overt, physical sexual abuse, violence in the household. So how do you identify generational trauma in a patient that might come in? What are the signs or symptoms and what longer-term physical ailments might it cause in an individual? So, I mean, the interesting thing is that there is no um, one diagnosis for intergenerational trauma. So in the DSM, the diagnostic manual that we use for um, mental illness, there is no specific diagnosis for intergenerational trauma. We might have a series of trauma and stressor-related disorders, but not specifically for this. So even though that is the case, it doesn't mean um, that it's not recognized, you know, as as a um, an experience that many many people will have. So what you might see actually with intergenerational trauma, unlike PTSD, you know, where there's maybe a very clear stressor and we can identify specific traumatic event and say this is it and it's causing these intrusive symptoms or these avoidance symptoms um, or this is how it's affecting your mood and your thoughts. With intergenerational trauma, what you might see is much more um, sort of uh, at a level of beliefs, for instance, um, and certain behaviors. Um, So you might have um, an experience where there's certain ingrained beliefs about, you know, the world being a very dangerous place, um, just a feeling of being unsafe in general and being hypervigilant all the time. So a person who presents with intergenerational trauma might actually have initially a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder um, or a major depression. Um, So they wouldn't necessarily present specifically with an intergenerational trauma as such. So how we actually then would look for signs and symptoms is we first explore what is the person currently presenting with And then we really would take a thorough history to assess what has happened. When did they start feeling the way that they were feeling? And if we are able to even trace it back to childhood, for instance, you know, for people to say, I've been feeling this way for as long as I can remember, then we might start thinking about asking questions around the the family, you know, and asking questions around parents' own experience or guardians' own experience um, of trauma or, you know, if, if there was anything like that that would have happened in the family, even several generations back, it all starts to become quite relevant. <clears throat> Sorry, because it means that um, you might have had 
sort of a lot of anxiety being passed down from generation to generation due to due to the trauma. So as I say, it's quite a fairly, it's not a new topic. I mean, this is obviously generational trauma. We're talking about centuries even of trauma and abuse working its way down into the modern generation. Um, but the, I think it came to the fore as a result of um, since 2013 sort of Black Lives Matter cropping up and, and becoming more overt in societal discussions and that. So I'd like to to cite historical examples, to chat about that and to paint a picture for, for the listeners here. I mean, for example, in our own country, uh, how apartheid impacted on the South African psyche. I think a lot of us keep saying, right, we've, uh, our people, our people have been free. We've been able to, everybody's been able to vote, et cetera, for the past 30 years now. Let's get over it. Let's move on. Rainbow Nation, Kumbaya. However, <laughs> is this really the case? The same can be said for the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, what's happening in Gaza right now. Are future generations ever really free from that trauma? Hmm. I mean, that's such an important question because it really, um, it's so difficult to say that because a trauma, um, a certain traumatic experience has passed, that well, everything is fine. And I mean, that goes, if you think about any trauma that can happen, even if it's the death of a loved one, for instance, you know, that can happen to you today, but you can still feel 20, in 20 years time, um, the real impact of that loss. So it's not um, unfathomable to think that there could still be traumatic experiences which were experienced by, you know, great-grandparents, grandparents that wouldn't have trickled down to current um, generations. And so I think, you know, even when we think about the Holocaust, um, for example, I think this, this is a very good example, actually, of intergenerational trauma because how this research um, came about into intergenerational trauma was when there was a realization, I think, amongst mental health professionals that um, the descendants, you know, of people who had either been persecuted and, and um, or sort of had been victims of the Holocaust, that they were overrepresented in psychiatric facilities or in terms of being diagnosed with mental illnesses or, you know, having these severe vulnerabilities to stress much more um, than the general population. And so the question came about as to what is it that's actually going on? And so I think the realization was then that there's certain things that are being passed down from generation to generation. And it would make sense. I mean, your sort of your, your ideas about how safe you are in the world, and that's linked to your identity. So um, in, in those days, it could be that if you are descended, for instance, um, of a Jewish person who might have either been, um, let me say, um, either persecuted or, you know, around that time or, you know, directly have been um, killed even during the Holocaust, it might affect the family in such a significant way because it means um, you have carried those particular experiences of being unsafe in the world, of persecution, you know, of, you know, the deaths and how this affects the, the family and how it affects your identity as a Jewish person, how you're perceived in the world as well. The remnants of that could have trickled down, you know, to uh, people even today. So we see the same thing happening even with slavery, where we know that 
um, there are descendants today of slaves who will, will speak about sort of this commonality of experience of being traumatized, even just at the thought that your ancestors, you know, were in chains and that you are having experiences today that they might have had, you know, in, in the days when they were alive as well, of being persecuted, of being um, discriminated against as well. And so those experiences, it feels like, are just persisting over hundreds and hundreds of years. I'd like to to circle this back to motherhood, but along the the lines of the the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been a rise in women speaking out about their maternal experiences differing from other women, from from white women or other women of color, but black women in particular. I mean, I'd like not to ignore this, that over the years they've been seen and speaking, you, you bring up on slavery and we've seen disgusting and horrible images of women being you know, put through tests, I suppose, and it, it coming out that perhaps black women have a higher pain threshold or worse, they don't feel the pain in the same way as other women do. And, I mean, this that's archaic and barbaric, but there's word of, of how this is filtered down to the way that modern black women are treated by their doctors uh, across all demographics. Can you comment on that? Sure. I think, you know... Unfortunately, black women, we've seen over the years, black women are heavily stereotyped either as kind of like strong black women. You know, when you see this in the media and mainstream media sort of over and over again, this idea that, you know, black women are either these rocks, you know, who can conquer anything. Or else sometimes you have this stereotype of the mad black woman as well also being perpetuated. And either way, I think that whatever stereotype it is sort of really takes away from, um, you know, the perception that uh, black women are human and that they, they, they too, we too experience, you know, pain in the same way as everybody else. Um, you know, that we are not just sort of ever enduring super strong and we can take on anything um, or that we are not just, you know, exaggerating our pain all the time and sort of complain because, oh, you know, we feel that the whole world is persecuting us and sort of we're having a hard time. So maybe we're just complaining a lot more um, than, than normal. So it's unfortunate, I think, that the, a lot of this stereotyping that has happened, in some ways, I do think it has trickled down um, into many people's um, sort of subconscious, I would say. And, you know, we know that racism exists in many different systems. We see it in corporate environments. So um, it's also not unthinkable that the healthcare system might also be subject to that, to systemic racism. And there's certain things that are happening in the healthcare system that we might not be aware of where um, maybe certain racist beliefs are influencing how black women are treated and how seriously their symptoms are are being taken as well. So I'm aware that we've been, I mean, we've been chatting a bit uh, on generational trauma and how it impacts a group of people versus the individual, but each person is different. Is there a difference between sort of an individual generational trauma or looking at it as a whole, as a group of people experiencing that generational trauma? Um, I think, you know, at an individual level, what you might see is a, a very specific set of symptoms that might just be related to your context, um, 
to you know maybe people in your environment or your workspace and 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 that sort of thing um and, and as far as a group setting i mean you 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 when you see um movements like black lives matter then you you see that sort of almost heightened sense of a common um destiny when when it comes to trauma that there, there is this commonality of experience that i'm having that other people are also having so i think there there is a slight difference um when it comes to the personal um individual side of it and that a person can experience their own symptoms quite discreetly and have you know one person um might have a quite a severe experience of trauma another might not it might be more of depressive symptoms for example um someone else might have more um ocd symptoms or you know something much more compulsive so at an individual level you know even though there can be a shared experience of of trauma and recognition that there's been this generational trauma like from apartheid being passed down from generation to generation that can be a common thing but on an individual level each person may present very very differently depending on their circumstances an image comes to mind when i think of generational trauma and how it applies to mothers and that it does the it does the rounds in sort of groups on on instagram and facebook that look at matrescence as a whole and that's that for a woman having a baby girl when she's pregnant with her baby girl there are three generations present because a baby girl in the womb has all of the eggs contains all of the eggs that she will ever produce in her lifetime as a woman. So when a grandmother is pregnant with a girl with the baby's mother at you know if if you if you're looking at the three generations a baby mother grandmother when the grandmother is pregnant with the baby girl um she contains all the eggs and one of those eggs will contain another baby girl. Uh you know so that's I mean it's just such a complex but meaningful way of looking at how generations are actually linked and mm-hmm. as we've mentioned here just unwittingly this is just a part of our dna it's a part of our blood um quite literally and i don't i think we need to be aware of it in order to break this cycle for our children and our children's yeah. children so how how do we do this how as with with psychotherapy is breaking free from generational trauma one sort of thing oh i've recognized this this is my problem once i've gone to my psychologist or my therapist for x amount of times and i feel better then then that's done or is this a journey i, I you know i think it's pretty obvious is it a journey that you're going to continuously have to navigate yeah i think it definitely is probably much more of a journey you know that's that's a lifelong journey um it's interesting when you were talking about the uh, the three generations there because you know i think in at at its core parenthood mothering is a transgenerational process and that's something that cannot be escaped in one way or another every mother is drawing from some experience um of being parented of of being mothered you know whether it's by own biological mother by guardians by um women that you've seen around you who 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 are mothers and taking from that to kind of influence your your own parenting style so i think in so many ways um you know parenting is is a transgenerational thing and so there's there's so much of that process that's that's always going to be something is trickling down from one person you know 
to to the next. So I I, I think I do think if we think about it as, as a sort of lifelong journey, that's also okay if it if it means that you know I'm just um, sort of seeing my life as a way of learning, um, as a way of understanding that I'm having a human experience, and sometimes adverse things will affect how I'm interacting with my child. They they might affect my perceptions about what I feel you know is going to be the future. Um, of my children, that's okay. But, you know, having that recognition um, and I think just maybe being more mindful in general, um, you know, whether it is when you attend psychotherapy with someone and you sort of get that ongoing support, that's perfectly fine. If it means engaging in more conversations with, um, you know, other mothers, that's also perfectly fine. If it means getting, you know, um, onto podcasts and, um, you know, searching for more information on the web, just to kind of almost be doing that constant update um, and to, I think, be helping yourself along in the learning journey. I think that's really the best that we can do is just to continue to to learn and be aware. We've spoken about generational trauma and that I, I would say if you're looking at a chicken-egg scenario, that's almost the cause of why a, a lot of moms would be, in addition to hormones and a, and a flood of other things, would be experiencing anxiety, depression, intrusive thoughts. And I'd like to ch- chat about that next. Anxiety and depression in new motherhood, has it's been an oversimplified topic, in my opinion, um, over the years, which has become very dangerous because, yes, we all experience similar hormonal things that happen. And you talk about, oh, on day three, you'll have the baby blues. But really, each person is an individual with their own situation, their own generational trauma their own flood of hormones. Um, And I do just feel like the oversimplification is quite dangerous. Would you agree here? Could we rather be saying that anxiety and depression is a sliding scale or it it can be seen on a spectrum and each individual should be looked at differently? Definitely. So I think that, um, you know, to, to some extent, there is that kind of minimizing that that might happen um, of symptoms, I think, indire- maybe indirectly, because I think to some extent, you know, the, the medical profession, the health profession might want to say there is a part of this that is a normal adjusting experience. And we don't want to pathologize mothers to say, oh, you have anxiety and you have depression. So you be diagnosing everybody when actually what's happening is you're going through a normal period of adjustment. So in essence, to be able to give moms um, that space to say, let's have your body do what it's going to do um, and see you through that process and not, you know, be quick to sort of make a diagnosis. I think in some ways that that's, um, that's okay. But definitely as far as the spectrum is concerned, you know, I, I, I completely agree with you. I do think it, it is on a spectrum, you know, even two people might be diagnosed with the same sort of anxiety disorder, but present very differently with their symptoms. Um, if you think about it as well, there's so many different symptoms um, and the threshold. So for instance, if there's 15 criteria um, for certain anxiety disorder, you might only need to read five, you know, to to actually make a diagnosis. So your combination of five might look very different than somebody else's combination of five. And that's why um, it's it's so important to look at each person individually and to have 
your specific situation looked at. If you feel like something is wrong, something is not okay, don't wait, you know, to compare yourself to somebody else and think, oh, well, maybe it's not, it's not as bad because that looks like quite an extreme situation over there. And I'm, I don't think I'm as bad as her. So actually I might be okay. It's just important to take your situation quite seriously, take your own symptoms seriously and yeah, and have it have it looked at from an individual perspective. I think that's always the best thing to do. So for a mother, what would those signs and symptoms be? And I'm curious as to whether depression and anxiety, does it look different um, with mothers? Does it look different to, to people who aren't mothers? You know, mm. or is are the signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety largely the same? So I think the symptoms, first of all, this, the signs and symptoms when you're looking at um, depression, it's this sort of persistently low mood or sadness. Um, or sometimes people even just talk about, you know, moms will talk about a sense of numbness and emptiness. But it's a very, it's a persistent feeling that just doesn't seem to go away over, the, over, over time. Um, sometimes severe mood swings intense irritability um, and just having kind of these anger outbursts. Um, Also persistent fatigue and abnormally low energy levels. And I mean, I know new moms, you you are going to have quite low energy levels when you're hardly sleeping. Um, But if if it really feels like, you know, even periods of rest do not seem to give you any kind of feeling of being refreshed in any way just even who I feel a little bit better I took a nap that persistent feeling of fatigue um, that could be a sign as well also things like appetite changes um, cognitive difficulties very poor concentration and attention that sort of fog where you feel like you can't make any decisions um, or being very very forgetful um, as well and also things like, you know, having difficulty bonding with your baby, um, feeling quite disconnected and sometimes even um, avoidance, maybe even engaging with um, with baby. Um, sometimes persistent doubts as well about your ability to take care of the baby, you know, the sort of excessive guilt, excessive worry that you're not doing well enough, you're not doing good enough at all, you're not figuring out what's wrong with the baby. And it, it doesn't seem to be something that, that goes away, that feels like, oh, okay, maybe this time I couldn't figure it out, but next time I will figure it out. It just feels in general that it's this feeling that follows me around. I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know if I'll ever be able to figure it out. So I think when any of those um, start to feel quite debilitating, that it really is taking over and I I can't feel okay, that it's, um, it's, it's more of a red flag, that there could be something more serious going on. Also, thoughts about um, death, about suicide, about possibly harming yourself. Sometimes also thoughts about harming the baby. That also does happen, and that can be um, a sign as well. So the important thing is that, you know, you can have any of these symptoms at any point in time, but if they are getting in your way in, in, in terms of your ability to function, that's when you really know that you, you, you possibly need an intervention. I'm feeling this way and it's actually crippling my ability to get up and go um, and take care of my baby's needs or take care of my own needs as well. Um, and then just as you also mentioned, if it looks different, if depression would yeah. look different 
in moms versus uh, people who are not moms. Um, I'd say there is somewhat of a difference. Um, the main difference being that probably in mothers, some of the depressive symptoms may very well be linked to the experiences of being a mother or to, you know, linked very much to experiences with your child. So for, for instance, feel, not feeling good enough as a mom, not feeling that you're doing enough, not feeling like you're bonding with your baby. So that can be quite specific to mothers um, where those symptoms would not exist. Those signs would not exist for a person who's, um, who's not a mom, but the core symptoms of the very low mood of lacking um, motivation of the cognitive difficulties and impairment, those would very much be the same. So two things come to mind that that I'd like to ask you, and that's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a new mother second time around. I'm, I'm seven months postpartum, which sometimes I kind of say, oh, well, it's seven months now, get over it. And But in the grand scheme of things, he's only seven months, and I, there's still a flood of hormones going through me. I'm still breastfeeding. Um, and I mentioned this just in case that there are listeners who who can relate. There are times, I mean, just last week I, I was premenstrual. And that that is an overshare, but I had a very low couple of days in the beginning of the week. I was so in what I was doing in the business of the week that I didn't realize I was premenstrual. I was feeling very low and for several months now it's just been, I mean, postpartum, hood is an, a, a roller coaster in and of itself and what as an individual I keep saying to myself is okay if this lasts longer then I'm going to need more permanent help so there is mm-hmm. sort of I think that as a mother that's the gray area for me is that we experience these symptoms of depression and as, yeah. an, and as an individual what I keep saying to myself is if they persist if that fog never lifts, or that heaviness never lifts, even for a couple of days at a time, that's when I, I really need to be hyper alert that this doesn't persist even even longer. And, yeah. and with that said, I want to ask you as a professional, in that that you mentioned that that you don't, it's it, we shouldn't be hyper pathologizing depression in in new mothers because these are such natural symptoms um, with women experiencing hormonal imbalance and sleep deprivation, of course you're going to feel low. However, mm-hmm. I do find with the hyperpathologizing, there's a blanket sort of solution and that women just get, get given medication. And I hesitate to say this because medication is necessary many times. But would you say that that's sort of an easy plaster to put over a larger societal issue when it comes to treating and supporting postpartum mothers? Mm. Yeah, you know, I think it can be quite problematic. Um, it, it can be. I think sometimes um, we might not um, necessarily spend enough time with moms in, in terms of normalizing the experience or even in the psychoeducation part to say, to actually give that information to say, you know, let's sit with you, let's see what you're experiencing um, and then, you know, l- let me kind of um, spend a little bit of time just to kind of find out a little bit more about what's actually going on, what's going on in your home circumstances that could be either exacerbating this, you know, or could potentially be quite protective in terms of helping you to alleviate some of the distress that you might be feeling. So what sort of things can be put in place 
you know, with the resources that you do have, if there are resources there to actually help protect you a little bit. So I think sometimes there they might not be enough time spent on those things to say, how do we use what is available to help you? How do we spend more time with psychoeducation to normalize some of these things that can feel for moms that this is distressing and something is wrong with me and I'm not okay. And actually then puts you into a spiral where you do become severely anxious and later depressed. So, you know, I, I think it is important that a lot of um, care is taken as far as the, the education part and a lot of care is taken as far as really, really finding out from each mom individually, what are your circumstances like and, and how can we even get additional social support for you if that is possible before, if, you know, if, 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 if that is possible before we have to resort to um, medications. And, you know, having said that, there are certain times when medications is absolutely necessary and it's the first, um, you know, best option. Um, but I, I do think that medication is never the solution on its own. It, it, it should never be the only um, option, you know, for the mom. We should also be talking about even if we do the prescriptions of medications, these are things that can su support and maintain your well-being, um, also make use of these options even if you're on medication as well. Mm. I, I often, and I've been thinking a lot, even post-COVID or, or now during this, this time that we find ourselves in and being postpartum, that what some people have been through, sort of death of family members or a life change in the case of a new mother, such a huge and um, important life change, it stands to reason that you're going to have days of anxiety and and yes. depression. So it's I, I do think it's a it's a it's about this discussion and opening it up. You mention um, dangerous thoughts, etc. Uh, you mentioned intrusive thoughts uh, where women have thoughts of harming their baby, harming themselves. Um, what are intrusive thoughts? Let's let's chat about this because there's some things in in my research that not shocked me but saddened me about them that there's such shame. And we don't talk about it enough as moms. So what, what would your definition of intrusive thoughts be? Let's start there. Um, intrusive thoughts are generally uh, sort of unwanted, um, sometimes irrational and inappropriate thoughts that can almost, um, they sort of, I, I want to say they maneuver their way into your brain, but it feels like they're just popping up you know, from your brain that they would pop into your consciousness when you, you didn't actually actively think that thought. So it feels much more like something that is happening to you, that it's, it's, it's something that's just popping in there. And that can be also what makes it quite scary is that, you know, this is an unwanted thought. I didn't want to think about harming my child, but now I'm having this thought. I didn't want to think about, you know, harming myself. I don't want to think about abandoning my child, but here I'm having this thought, you know, about, about that. So it can be very disturbing and upsetting in, in terms of the content. Sometimes intrusive thoughts are quite random. It's, 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 it just feels like odd. Um, it might not necessarily be something like, um, like harm, you know, but yeah, it's definitely something that feels out of your own consciousness, um, and that it is unwanted 
Um, and some, something about it doesn't quite feel like it's within your control. How I relate to it, again, as a new mother for the second time, is that I, I have stairs leading down from my kids' room. And when I walk down the stairs carrying my baby, I mean, I'm sleep deprived many times or I'm in my slippers. And that in, uh, many times that's one intrusive thought that, that happens and it's fleeting. And I, I visualize it's really quick. It's not like a daydream or anything. It's a quick just snapshot in my brain that I have no control over of me tripping and falling and my baby mm. violently hitting the ground and being severely injured. So mm. I, I would assume that that is, is what you mean. There are also in, in, in my research I've found, and it's not that I'm shocked that this is a reality. What I'm shocked is that women aren't talking about it. So I want to know how prevalent it is that women or men, I would assume, but people have – uh, intrusive sexual thoughts about their children and people obviously don't talk about this because there is so much shame in it and and that's what shocked me or I suppose impacted on me is how sad I am that we're not talking about this so I'd like to just talk about it here in your experience how prevalent are sexual intrusive thoughts about your your children because I do think that violence or accidental intrusive thoughts are common enough can we normalize that sexual thoughts do happen? And then how do you deal with that? Because there is a deep sense of shame if you do yeah. happen to have a brief invasive sexual thoughts about your child. Yeah, yeah. So it can be quite normal, you know, to have those um, thoughts. I think the thing is, it's 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 very common to have an intrusive thought. You, we can't always control what the, I mean, maybe never actually, you never really control what the content of the intrusive thought is going to be so you know as you said sometimes it is that um idea of you know these sexual kind of intrusive thoughts and it can be really really disturbing you know when it happens because it can make you feel question yourself what's wrong with me why would i what's wrong yeah. with me? why on earth would i have that particular thought so you know sometimes it it really is something that just it comes down to brain chemistry um, and, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, you can have processes that happen in the brain that allow intrusive thoughts to occur, not necessarily also that they design what, what is going to be in the intrusive thoughts, but that you can just have an intrusive thoughts, whether it's a violent one or something that's much more kind of like mundane. Um, but it is a very common experience, um, that parents do have, and it is often, very difficult, as you said, to, to speak about it. So sometimes, you know, I as a professional would discover it when I've probed about it, when I've actually found out, um, you know, from the parents that they do have these sort of, you know, do you sometimes just have these thoughts that pop into your head that you don't want to think about, you know, about your child and they, and they might say yes. And um, sometimes people might say no because of what the implications are going to be. So we'd have to say proactively that, you know, it's quite normal sometimes that you can have certain thoughts um, about your child. Sometimes it's fears for their safety. And so you might picture something really horrible happening to them. Um, and it's it, it might almost be a way sometimes for your brain to heighten you to um, potential risks and rather to say, what can you do to keep the child safe? So I suppose one can see the intrusive thoughts sometimes as um, kind of information from your your brain. You don't you don't always have to act on what the intrusive thought is. You know you don't have to 
um, engage it as though it's something real and it's something that's going to happen. But you can kind of see it as a normal process that, okay, this is something that happens. It's happening in my brain. I might have this when I'm on top of the stairs. Um, and I suppose I can take it as, okay, it's information. Let me take this as a reminder to be very, very cautious as I'm walking down the stairs. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's a very unpleasant thing mm-hmm. when you are experiencing it for sure, but it is a very normal experience. And I think it's much, um, it's much better for people to speak about it rather to the health professionals to say, you know, I have experienced this happening and, you know, to what extent is distressing for them rather than to actually keep quiet um, and feel even ashamed that it's occurring because it's not, um, it's not your fault mm. that it's happening. Your brain is doing something and sometimes that's just what happens. Mm. And destigmatizing that is, is a way of showing that you're not a, a, a ill as an mentally ill as mm-hmm. an individual, because then if that's the case, then we're all mentally ill <laughs> because yeah. it happens to everybody. Yeah. Speaking of stigma, Slee, um, there still seems to be a huge stigma around anxiety and depression postpartum especially, it's meant to be a happy time for new moms or new dads. You know, we're speaking about motherhood now, but uh, I would say that, um, would you call it postpartum depression for, for men as well? It's, it's also a reality. So how would you respond to the notion if a mother was sitting in front of you and they said, this is meant to be a happy time for me? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, I think one of the most important things is is, is to realize that you know no experience is supposed to be a one-dimensional experience um, parenthood is not supposed to just be joyous um, or you know ju- just only be one thing and there's no other aspect of life if you think about it, there's no other aspect in your life where you take on a role and it is only supposed to be one thing not in your work not in your personal um, intimate relationships there there is there's no place where you would expect that of yourself. So why would you expect that of yourself as a parent that you only feel just this immense gratitude and joy and, you know, to just feel immensely blessed and nothing else um, through your experience as a parent. So I do think for one, it's um, it's quite important just to kind of understand parenthood as a multidimensional experience, as a human experience where there are normal um, sort of ups and downs um, and to and to also know that it's not a personal reflection on you, um, on you know to say that this it's a shortcoming if you feel anything other than happiness, um, you know as as a as a parent. So being able to experience um, worries, being able to experience anxieties, being able to feel tired. I'm really tired today of being. I'm really tired of being a mom today. I don't feel like it. I'm tired of being a dad today. <laughs> It doesn't mean you don't love your child, but it's okay because you're having a human, a multidimensional human experience. Yeah. My next question and my last one is twofold. And that's you, in in my mind, there's two people at play here and how we can do this better. So as a society, how can we be better at managing support for mothers in terms of mental health and support throughout matrescence that's from conception and part way past even the the first thousand days of all of of from when you conceive, and then if a mother is not feeling like she's finding the support she needs, but she knows she needs help, what can she do? 
So I think for one, um, I, 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 do, I do think now more than ever, there are so many resources for parents to be able to access. So really being able to um, engage, you know, on all these different platforms that are there for parents to hear, you know, about, oh, there's, oh, sometimes there's dark aspects, you know, to parenting and what's, what's that about? And I'm actually experiencing some of the same thing myself. So I think to be able to, um, to kind of engage as much as possible with this world that, that you're in as a, as a parent, um, being proactive where you can, but that is really helpful. As a society, I think it would also be really helpful that we don't put pressure on parents, you know, to, to kind of have this experience, um, you know, it's like experience motherhood as this joyful thing and kind of prescribe that this is what it should be and actually let people have the experience that they're having and support them through it. So to, um, to just be able to normalize some of um, some experiences that, um, you know, new parents might have to be able, I think, to not judge um, new parents who might be struggling, feel like, well, if you had raised children this way and, you know, you're not doing this millennial parenting, then you wouldn't be struggling so much. Um, so I think, I think just being able to kind of um, be more embracing of parents and be more embracing of these many, many multiple experiences um, of parenthood that people are having is really, really helpful. Um, and reaching out on many different platforms to engage can be a very helpful thing as well. So yeah, I do I do think that wherever it is possible, engaging with healthcare services um, can be key here um, because there's, there is a lot of help and there's a lot of knowledge that is available there. Um, but I think we do also still have some ways to go uh, as far as healthcare providers, you know, in terms of learning from parents, learning from moms, what they are going through and really using it to inform the way that we think um, about parents. So you also, I think, need to understand as a parent that you have valuable information um, and your experience matters a lot. And you can also teach even healthcare professionals about what you're going through. Um, so not to feel ashamed of that um, and to hopefully get more um, people around you to be listening and engaging with you on your experiences as well. So Lee, if what you've said resonates with anyone listening, where is it that people can get hold of you if they feel the need to? So people can get hold of me through uh, mainly my Instagram page. Um, you can also find me through Therapy Root and through Psychology Today um, and through Find Help as well. So Find Help, Psychology Today and Therapy Root are three um, platforms. I mean, there's many, many more, um, but it's platforms where you can find um, a mental health care practitioner in your city, in your town, in your suburb. And um, so I think they're really great platforms that, you know, anyone can use, but I'm also on there. So you can specifically go on there to search for my page um, or to, you know, just search for um, any therapist that would be able to help you where you are. Well, thank you so much. We're going to put our listeners and readers in touch with 
at all of those platforms um, so that anybody listening can find help no matter where they are or what demographic or what their financial situation is. Every mother in South Africa and father for that matter deserves help uh, with regards to this this journey of becoming a parent. Slee, yeah. thank you so much. I hope it's not the last time that we'll be chatting. In fact, I'm fairly certain it won't be because as, as long as you'll have me picking your brain, I will continue to pick at it. Thank you for joining me on The Great Equalizer. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's been a pleasure.